Hi, my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. My guest today is Reginald Dwayne Betts, a poet, memoirist, attorney, and current PhD candidate at Yale Law. Dwayne draws from his own lived experiences as a teen in maximum security prisons to create work that interrogates, challenges, and fundamentally reshapes how we all might think about the meaning of justice. Just last week, it was announced that in addition to his fellowships from the Guggenheim, Radcliffe Institute, and Soros Justice, amongst others, he's now a member of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Grant Cohort. Dwayne and I go back for years. We met as we were doing human rights work against mass incarceration in the D.C. area. As this episode opens, we're in the midst of talking about the lessons learned from an organizing effort in the early aughts, transforming a notorious juvenile detention facility called Oak Hill into an institution premised on the principles of restorative justice, um, named New Beginnings. As the conversation evolves, we'll get into his family story and also hear an exclusive take on the work he's up to now with his new organization, Freedom Reads. Let's listen in. I'm curious to know more about what you're what you're saying when you said time doesn't function the way that we think it does. What how do you how do you think about time? I guess I guess I was in my twenties and um and back then I, I was uh I couldn't enjoy anything because I just had this sense of these several things that I was supposed to be accomplishing. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard, you know, and particularly like like having a having a kid and and like not making any money and um and imagining that everything I needed was about money and so I understood time to be um pressure Hmm. as as opposed to freedom I just didn't understand back then what it meant to take time to figure something out you know and um so I guess you know, like I thought I would finish my prison sentence and it would be over. And this is literally like 16 years later, um, 24 years after committing a crime that it hasn't left. And and I, I used to, I, it's so funny. My wife used to be like, you know, write about something else besides prison. And and it's not that it was like a a challenge or anything, but I think like, like now a decade later and I'm still writing about prison, I think it's realized it's like, yeah, the time it takes to process anything just just doesn't work um, based on convenience, you know. And I feel like I, you know, had I been more conscious of the fact that that you won't get that time back and whatever you do with the time is going to stay with you, I, I probably would have made a few a few different decisions. And I say that, you know, working really hard to make different decisions now. It's always fighting about fighting with the realities of time. Um, and the expectations of it. Even the languaging around what it means to be in prison when they're like, you, you do time. Yeah, or they say you either do the time or the time does you. I think <laughs> about like Toni Morrison saying, you know, we do language as as writers, <laughs> right? Yeah. We do our work. It's it's just such an interesting, it's such an interesting way to, to think about it, to put it, to to be in it. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually funny too though, cause like Zoom, like he's like, we're going to do this interview. You know, we're going to have this conversation. And I think so much of technology is sort of like, well, let's not have this conversation. Let's like have half of the conversation. So like, like, let's like check the email, Um, you know, let's like, and then my my kid was coming to ask me something and he was like, okay, I'm being ignored because right now he's doing something else. You know, my dad is doing something else. And And it is actually figuring out, I think in the modern world, it's figuring out how to spend more time doing like like not letting the time do you and actually doing the time and it was interesting like I'm so- i think my time all right too i ain't even you know actually of all of the things i'm not ashamed of you know what i mean and i think i got some traits from prison that i've that i've held on to you know like the, the being non-confrontational the, to being willing to walk away with the l i think has like has like served me well pretty consistently and i also think part of that is like you know what it means to try to have a commitment to something even if you can't name the thing that you have a commitment to um 
like nobody in prison is nonviolent. It seems an absurdity, you know, except violence always gets you more time in prison. You know, it's like, it's like violence is like, it's like, it's like a, a lot of aggressively violent abolitionists. You know, I've never heard abolitionists really advocate for nonviolence in prison uh, or even talking about how does nonviolence work in prison? What does it mean to be like non-confrontational? Maybe this is probably why I never call myself an abolitionist because like the demand is always like, I, I, I don't know, my man, he, he um his, his cousin got murdered. And and then the the, the attorney general, because it was um the AUSA called him and was like, how do you feel about this guy getting out? It's a federal case, and the guy was trying to get out because of COVID. And he's like, don't call me asking me these questions. And you know, we all people who like grew up in complex situations and dangerous places, and do criminal justice reform work, and all of a sudden, it's hard to answer the question. When it's somebody else's freedom, and I think the reason why it's hard to answer the question when it's somebody else's freedom is because, I don't know, I think we all struggle with what the demands are to be free when you hurt somebody else. And I'd be trying to create work that not answers the question, but I think now I'm trying to create work that even like asks the question, you know. One of the things that's popping to mind is is going back to that, you know, those years that I was that I was working at at Oak Hill. And then new beginnings because it switched over in the middle of my time that I was working there from from one facility to to another. Um, I never I would never talk to the young people about what they did unless they volunteered that I never asked. Um, and I'm sure that some of them did hurt people, but I also kind of had the assumption that most of them were being hurt, right? Like it was the I remember having a conversation with this one. Um, young man about how generationally so many of his family had been locked up and then across his peer group how many people he knew were either locked up or or um dead or you know struggling and just the general just the general like it wasn't even an outrage he felt it was kind of more like a a disappointment i feel like i felt because he was a child right so it was just like this sadness about what was happening to us, you know what I mean? Like it was just this, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Have I been let down in the ways that I feel like I'm being let down? Is this kind of targeting real, you know? It was crazy, I was at New Beginning, so I'd never, I've been to Oak Hill when they was just about to shut Oak Hill down. Mm-hmm. I was on one of those tours and I was like, fuck y'all got me. I was so disgusted, you know? Mm-hmm. I was so disgusted that I went and was, like stole me a hot dog. I was just like eating with the kids, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, they was like, where's Dwayne at? They was like, man, why is he over there? I fucking, I mean, I was like so disgusted, right? And they was like, dude, what is you doing here? I was like, man, I don't know. I'm supposed to be with them, but it's fucking, man. Y'all play football? And we just like, I'm just talking to some youngers, you know? And I didn't know that they was like playing football. And, and it's funny because they was like talking trash with each other. And then it was including me. And they had let them set up some game when they played some people on the outside. It was, it was the cast was, was cool, right? Um, but this kid came up to me. He said, Mr. Dwayne. I was like, Yo, do you got a brother that goes to heart? And he was like, nah, I'm my only child. But I went to heart. I was like, when? I had knew this kid since he was a seventh grader. What? And 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 you know, he will fuck me up is he called me Mr. Dwayne because he remembered me and didn't know that he remembered me. Or he remembered me and didn't know that I remembered him. And didn't want to tell me that he remembered me. You know, maybe he was just mm-hmm. testing me. Mm-hmm. But I was like, shit, man, I remember you. Because I had played him in basketball. This little, I was like, if you do your home, if I beat you in basketball, you got to do your homework. He was like, you can't beat me in basketball. I had on Timberlands. I was like, I ain't even going to tie up my boots. <laughs> I, I hit him with a shoulder and, slammed, and he slammed into the wall. And I was like, oh, my bad. But I weighed 200 pounds. And then I made the layup. <laughs> and, and, like, and he was one of these kids that, like, talked a lot of shit. You know, he was one of the kids that was, like, loud mouth. Um. And they told me, they was like, well, he's selling drugs. I was like, yo, dude, you dry snitching. You ain't even dry snitching. And the other kid was like, I know, stop being a snitch. I was like, but you know you ain't got no business selling drugs, man. And then we talking, right? But it was like different. But I finally get this kid to try to write a poem. And he couldn't really read. Mm. And it fucked me up because, you know, he was in the end of the seventh grade school year. And 
And so then when I see him at Oak Hill a few years later, I'm like, no wonder you here. Because if you know what an onomatopoeia is at 13, you're probably not going to get locked up. And it's just like fundamentally true. You know, if you know what an onomatopoeia is, you're not going to end up locked up. Mm-hmm. And and it was and it fucked me up because I thought this is the thing you said. This is about the, the sort of intergeneration of legacy of incarceration and the fact that most of those young kids, I mean, they not like the people in prison where, where we pull pistols out on people. We rob people. Well, most of those kids are locked up for like truancy, for drug dealing, for fights, for things that like we should be able to figure out a way to deal with them that does not include incarceration or does not include the kind of horrible experiences that they go through. But the tragedy is that they were going to a better school than most of them experienced on the outside. That's exactly now right. They had kill, they had those res- at new beginnings, if they'd had access yes. to those kinds of resources in the community as opposed to having to go behind bars for that, right? Like, right. then the whole then the whole system is is unnecessary, really. Because I'm like, dude, if, if the fact that you can't read, like, we fundamentally failed you. And he was the only child, and I didn't even know he was the only child. I was like, damn. Because the other truth is, like, we do have alternate ways of dealing with the the kinds of, um, you know, truancy and et cetera that you were mentioning before. It's just that those those don't apply to black kids. It's well, not that the ways don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and it's the, I mean, and the real thing, like, my, my dad lived right down the street from where Hart is, right? And, um, you know, and one of the things is, like, you just see... And I think about where I live now and also the community, the resources I was always able to get for my kids. Sometimes just like, man, I'm gonna get another loan. You know, um, you know, how you pay for piano lessons. Man, I don't know. We just put on a credit card. We figured out just like sort of small things like that, that I think end up having, end up mattering in, in ways. But even, a, even, a, um, I just found out like the, the sort of like the synthesizer, it's like $200, you know? And and just like the idea of like introducing somebody to music in that way. That's why I thought it was always dope that you were going in and you were teaching. And I thought, you know, I mean, I was like surprised. I was like, oh, we can because you work in a new beginning. So this is just like a small coterie of us who actually care to go back to places like that. And mm-hmm. it's even smaller for people who ain't never been. I guess mm-hmm. it's small for people who've been too. And so it's like that's one of the things that I always admire because I was like, oh, shit, you do this? The, the stakes and the desire to do work like this is not about, um, you know, it's not about like a Guggenheim or, or all of the honors that we end up getting that's adjacent to it. Like the, the, this is like, you know, feeling like you, you have a duty and a responsibility. So we, I mean, I grew up, I feel like we about the same age. I'm probably older than you. I'm like 40 something, but I feel like we grew up in that era that didn't have, um, like there's no after school programs. That shit wasn't even a thing that existed when I came up. And I almost feel like, you know, we talk about, well, we have after school programs now, or you was at New Beginnings. I'm like, yeah, but none of these kids' parents they have access to that. You know, what you're trying to do is repair two generations of damage, right? Not just one. And that's where I think the 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 the, the huge challenge becomes comes into place when people don't want to acknowledge that that part of this society. How do you support a whole community, mm-hmm. not just like not just like one kid. That's right. To that end, I, I love what you're doing with the Million Book Project, and I, I want to talk to you about about where things are with that. But I guess the place to start is is if you wouldn't mind um, sharing with the audience this this that this project grew out of an experience you had, uh, where you talked about this thing called fishing. Can you can yeah. you tell that story? Yeah. So it's interesting. So um, so we call it. Well, actually, so we call it fishing, but um, fishing is when you're in prison and you, um, you know, you get in sales as parallel, but you got to fish between buildings. There was some radical things going on. And actually, I'm going to tell the backstory that I never told you. So so books were contraband in the hole. And so mm-hmm. the question becomes, how do you get books into the hole then? And the way you would do it is if you were in a sale that was facing, um, so the buildings were parallel and the sales were parallel. So if you were on a row of sales that faced the other building, you could take you a row of string and tie a shampoo bottle with water in it and throw it, you know, 20 feet into the space between the two buildings and somebody else would do the same thing. And then the screens would get pulled taut and you would pull one in and then you would tie them off and then you would put a bag on it and that bag would have books in it and it have food in it and it have cigarettes in it. It might have, you know, wine in it, have whatever you wanted to send to the hole in it. And then your homeboy will pull it in. And now this is how you're getting books in the solitary confinement. And, um, and then when you're in the hole, you know, somebody says, like, let me get a book. 
and you ask for a book, somebody slides a book to you. And um, and I asked for a book and then somebody slid me to Black Poets. And that's how I became a poet, right? Like like this idea of uh, meeting a Mary Baraka, you know, meeting all of these folks. And um, and then the the thing that um that was really radical post that, right? Was um, you know, having done that, having said, um, you know, asked for a book and somebody gave me the black poets and I became a poet. I started getting introduced to all kinds of other books. And I thought, like, you know, um, somebody said, you know, you look at somebody's library and if they and, and what you want is the person to have a bunch of books they haven't read on a library. Because the library is not supposed to be the accumulation of known wealth, but an opportunity to learn more. I love and that. So you have books that you, you know, love, but you also have books that you haven't read because that's what that's what life is, is about learning more. And in fact, the more you know, the more books that you haven't read, you'll probably have on your library. So anyway, I was like, I called it the Million Book Project initially because I was trying to put books in a prison and I wanted a name that announced what it was really about. But then I started calling it Freedom Reads. And and the thing is, like, freedom begins with a book. And I wanted to have a, a, a name for the organization that suggested the fundamental principle that it was based on. Freedom Reads. And then what do you do? Well, we build freedom libraries. And freedom libraries consist of a 500-book collection and a beautiful um, shelving and seating system designed by Mass Design, the same design group that built um, the Lynch Memorial, Brian Stevenson's Lynch Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, wow. And this is made of maple. You know, and it's beautiful, and we put it into the prisons. The reason why I got mass design is because when you when you when you want to build the actual bookshelf, um, we wanted to to have something that was designed that that created a space, a micro library, and so you could access the books on both sides on both sides. And it's it's a it's an art object, but it really is a, a architectural piece of work, you know. Um, and and it looks it looks lovely, you know. I I just got the I think I got the, the I'm, I'm excited when we get off, I'm gonna go get the samples um, because I think I got the structures downstairs. Um, in fact, if you hold on for half a second, I'll run down and see if I got it. Oh yeah, I would love to see. All right, hold on. It, it came, but not to here. And let me see if I could, I'll show you a picture of it now. Okay. So this is just a model. It's like a one eighth scale, mm -hmm. but but it gives you a real sense of what it looks like. Let me find a thing. And where is the one that, where's this one gonna be housed? I know you're taking the thing to out a thousand different facilities, right? Yeah, so the first bats are probably going to be, um, it looks like the first bats are going to be, um, we getting a sale in um, Norfolk. We turn in um, Malcolm X's, uh, prison cell into a library yo yeah that's incredible so the one the one that we're doing in in, in um in in norfolk doesn't look exactly like this because we had a whole sale so this this model is what we're putting in angola mm -hmm. you access it from both sides and the idea of being able to access it both from both sides is just this argument that it does become like the stacks it becomes a place that people could come to and um and sort of look at together mm-hmm and that's that's part of you know I think we think that's part of the power of it. It's not just like um, it's not just what you see. It's it's this 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 whole opportunity to um, to meet people around books, and and to, and to really be in communion with people and with books. So this is the design I just showed you that was in the two dimensional piece. Oh, it has wheels, so it can go from place to place. It depends on the prison. Some prisons want wheels. Some prisons want little feet. Some prisons want it to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Again, all of these questions, the security questions. And, and it's interesting because like one guy was like, yo, I got to make sure that we can, you don't create something that somebody could take something off and stab themselves in the eye. And it's this dude wow. that like, and he's like seriously concerned with safety and not even just people inflicting harm on others, but people inflicting harm on themselves. And he works at a, at an institution that probably shouldn't exist. But as long as it exists, you know, he's like, my job is to make sure people stay safe. And basically, we tell people that we make, um, we could create something that fits the space that you have. And so now we're at the point where, where like a lot of the work is really just like, um, you know, getting approval, getting approval for materials, 
um, but also working with these other prisons to, to get design functions and actually like install a few so that it is streamlined the process. So we can say, well, this is what we did here. Um, this is what we did here. This is what we did here. So yeah, and COVID is, you know, I was supposed to be in Angola the last week of September. I'm doing my show, um, you know, but COVID, COVID shut that down. So we sort of just waiting, but we hoping to go ahead and get this done in Massachusetts because the states that have been better with COVID create more opportunities for us to come in like right now. So that's kind of where we are. But yeah, that's what it looks like. And, you know, and I'm excited though, because again, it's about transforming space and acknowledging that people have to live there until they don't. And and the one thing that I can have some sway over and some control over is like, you know, books really transform my lives and my life and the idea of it being possible is something that I want to bring to other folks. And, you know, thinking about what books do that, thinking about how some of those books do that is uh it's just like really important. Do you have to get approval on the different book lists for each one? Yeah, so we put in 600 books so that we have some wiggle room for when things um, don't work. Mm -hmm. But um, the all of these classics have contemporary introductions where, like Kiese uh, Limon wrote the introduction for, for Huckleberry Finn. Uh, Layla Lalami wrote the introduction for um, Heart of Darkness. And everybody recognizes mm -hmm. that Heart of Darkness is like super racist, right? Yeah. But when you hear what Lalami writes about it, you realize that that's not the only point. Because a lot of us got introduced to literature by things that turned us off. I mean, shit, a lot of us got introduced by hip hop, by things that was like super misogynistic, right? And we had to learn how to find ourselves in the worst of it. And 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 we might not go back to it, but that becomes a part of how we became. And um, and so what she's talking about is the context in which she heard that and what that meant for her to try to wade through that water. And that was the first English language book she read. Uh, and Nicole Hannah-Jones writes the the intro for um for, for souls of black folks and these are all books in the public domain which means that they're basically out of copyright so people say how come you don't have more black books in this run or more books written by um latino authors in this run it's because we're talking about books that were published before like 1926 when when a lot of black folks weren't publishing books because we were still dealing with the vestiges of slavery in a very real way you know um but anyway titus is designing a shelf that's for these books and just for that run of books. And it's a special edition. And when you look at the spines and you look across the spines, it makes the logo for Freedom Reads. And um, and the logo is an Ansem Kiefer sculpture called Language, uh, called Book Book with Wings. And, and um, that's what you have tatted on your back, right? No, on my back, I have an Ansem Kiefer sculpture called, um, called Language of Birds. And it's a giant stack of books with the wings coming out. I kind of obsessed with, I mean, I'm not, maybe I am obsessed with Kiefer because Kiefer's obsessed with, with wings and books. And I think um, maybe we share that obsession, the idea that knowledge might give us flight and the idea of the fear that it won't. Like, I just want to be something of a catalyst to, to amplify the work that people are already committed to doing mm -hmm. and, um, and, and encourage some others who, who I know want to do the work, but it's not sometimes some sometimes work like this ain't on our agenda just because um it seems impossible well you it's don't know how like you need a way in yeah you know you know i think um um so it's primarily a literary project and, and because of that like nobody is really going to be checking every shed i ain't sleep to ask if it's something in it that is um a threat to institutional security um but i i, I know that Youssef is a threat to the institution of incarceration. I know that, you know, Yousef will make you radically think differently about who you are in the world. And that is a, a bigger threat to the institution of incarceration. And I, I'm gonna stop naming names because people are going to watch this and be like, oh, he was just like, you know, all of these lights are the contemporary world. <laughs> he has no respect for them. But in fairness, uh, you were just talking about Yousef Kumanyaka, right? Yusef Komiyaka is going to change the world. I don't know if I'm, 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 I'm definitely not saying I'm going to change the world, but I fundamentally just, you know, it's really hard when you think about a project like this and you think about talking to young people and you think about talking to people who don't have a PhD in criminology, mm -hmm. you know, you say, what, do, what does this person need to understand the circumstances? But yeah, what P Jones, you know, they need lost to the city. You know, they not, they don't need like, you know, they don't, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, they don't need some of these other books that I'm staring at right now. <laughs> uh, yeah so such is life i am going to just run through a series of questions just to get your your response to them um all right cool 
So I think I want to start with the piece you contributed to We Hold These Truths, the film that we did with artists from, from the season of lineage, where you were talking about how it's not always easy to find a clear lesson to be told like from your ancestors. The, the, the premise of the film was looking at the, the lessons that we've learned from our grandmothers or grandmother-like figures. Um, and, and you had this really profound reflection where you were talking about the lesson is in the life. Um, and I was wondering if you could just spend some time, you know, talking about what you meant by that, the lesson is in the life. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I, I guess some of us aren't, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I think my, my grandmom is just like good people and, and, um, and she ain't got no college degree and like, you know, she ain't retired from no job nowhere, but. She take care of her kids. She take care of her kids still, even when when her kids ain't necessarily trying to take care of themselves. And um, and she, you know, she was upright. She kept a good house. Uh, she ain't she ain't had the vices that ruin us. And I mean, I think it's just a, a real lesson in that, especially for me in a world in which the meaningfulness that I'm supposed to gain from my own life is all tied to like accolades and awards. You know, I come from people who ain't do that, and still she you know, struggled to get through high school as an adult because she, she thought education was important. And so I think, um, you know, when I think about my folks and I say the lesson is in the life, it's kind of a remembrance that like, I, I don't exist in a talented tiff. You know what I mean? I was like, you know, I was like, um, uh, my peoples have always been, you know, more Booker T. Washington than W.E.B. Du Bois. <laughs> and it's really, you know, interesting because, you know, you'd be like, man, be a Booker T. Washington guy. It's like my people was the people who was like putting their hands in the dirt trying to build something. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't going to Harvard, you know, and 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 sometimes we had to bristle against the way people who who who, who were fortunate and blessed in different ways and able to access and make use of their lives in different ways and how they looked at us. And so I think about my grandmother's, you know, the lesson being in life is also like she worked hard and um, they they grew up and she raised her, her kids in D.C. in the Southeast. And there's a lot of things to become in D.C. during those years. And um, and all her children became high school graduates. And, and that shit got to matter, you know, and I think that's what I mean. The lesson is in the life. How, how many generations can you trace back in your family? How far back can you go? My grandmother, you know me. Yeah. Um, my grandmother, her, her mom passed. I need to do some 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 research just to be able to do it for for my grandmother maybe but like you know I remember meeting my great grandmother when I was young but um you remember that meeting? Yeah, I remember it. What like, do you remember she, about she was that? like really older, you know. But like, you know, I mean I I do think I'm fully, you know, part of what I think about being a black American and having moved from the south because I also think that this is a condition of having moved from the south. You know, my folks is from South Carolina and North Carolina, but having come up here, I think part of the consequence was that we lost that lineage. And I sort of both resent it, but also both be like, you know, my grandmother's a hero because she made it and she's here. And and like, what does it mean to be able to name her and know that the, the inability to name some other folks is really a testament to how precarious my own existence is and not a testament to the failure of my kin. What do you know about the circumstances of your your own birth? Very little, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I know it was in California on an Air Force base, um, and I know more about the circumstances. Now, now this is this is going to be useful because very little. So now I'm gonna go back and um, and, and interview my mom and, and find out more about the circumstances of my oh, birth. Um, do you know the story of your name? I'm named after my father. A better question is, do I know the story of why everybody calls me Dwayne and not Reginald? You know, because like, <laughs> I've always been Reginald. I mean, I've always been Dwayne, um, even when I was a kid. What do you think I that's about? My dad's name is Reggie. And then, you know, it's like, you're not going to have two Reggies running around here acting a damn fool. <laughs> then my mom is mad because she's like, I still had two Reggies running around here acting a damn fool. <laughs> What stories, what stories have you been told, uh, if any, about how we made it over? You were talking about how you come from, from all these generations of survivors. Are there any conversations had about the how of that? 
I, you know, I remember my, 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 my pops, you know, he liked to tell me that the reason why we ended up in DC is because somebody, they stole his, his, he, he's like his father's father was married to a Cherokee woman and, and had a store in Virginia and they stole it. And so his father shot a white man and ran. But my dad, you know, he just makes shit up. So I don't know if it's true or not. You know what I mean? But it's like, you know, but what I, I think, what I take from that story is, uh, his dad ended up living in Oklahoma, I mean, in, um, in Nebraska. And I don't know how his dad got to Nebraska. Nebraska. Um, I was like, ain't nobody, like, no black people live in Nebraska. And then my dad was like, he's like, you know, my dad lives in Nebraska. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Part of talking to you makes me realize how important stories are. And I've been thinking about this because my PhD work is to collect these old histories of men who did time in prison from when they were a teenager to at least 20 years and think about what it means to go through puberty in your early 20s and your late 20s and your 30s in prison. Yeah. Because that's a, a lot of living. And, um, and talking to you now makes me realize the same is true of my family. It's like how if no one collects the stories, the stories don't exist it's not that they aren't there but at some point they stop existing and they do stop being there and so now i feel like you you're tasking me with with doing some more work or actually tasking me with talking to my children too and, and helping them understand like the the value of collecting these stories even when they're collecting them from like me and their mom you know and the thing is like the way in which we have stories um that that get subsumed and the ones that we choose to tell. So I have stories that have nothing to do with prison, uh, but if I don't do a good enough job of telling those stories, then those stories disappear in the stories I tell about prison. And I think many, many of my family, they have stories that have just um, been subsumed by the silence. I think one of the things that I'm realizing as I talk to you is that it's a bigger task and just like really do some more work to be like, let me let me hear these things, you know? No, oh, that's beautiful. I'm glad that that's, bring, that's, bring, that's coming up for you. Um, from this because I you were saying even me and, and your mom when you're talking about what your kids should be doing but to me I'm like especially you know talk to your parents and your grandparents to me like that's really what this you know this whole this whole project lineage began because I found um, uh, records that my grandmother kept about our own family and the genealogical research she was doing on us and, and really trying to think about how you know the stories of our own family and how we as black people made home in this country um, can be useful in this moment that we're all living through now, you know, and how these yeah, stories aren't just ours. They're, you know, they're not, you know, these come from my family, but we all have these stories. And like you said, it's the question about which ones do we choose to surface and which ones do we subsume, you know? Um, yeah. And I think it's like this uh, American lesson, legacy that that we always you know like when, when lucille clifton said mine has always been an african name mm-hmm. and she's talking about lucille <laughs> you know it's like it's like <laughs> y'all it's like she's just like uh okay okay you go hard you write this everybody else changing their name to like you know i'm, I'm, I'm to all of their names and you right. like yeah and my grandma my name lucille you tell me my name ain't african it's like <laughs> That's that was always gangster to me. I read that in prison when everybody around me was changing my name and everybody was calling me Shahid. Uh-huh. She talked about Lucille has always been an African name, you know. Yes, ma'am. Like, Damn, this is gangster, you know. Yeah, I love that. That's why I like to talk to people about the story of their names. First of all, you know, is that a conversation that's had in your family? But you know, for me, like, I'm from the generation where where people were picking up, you know, Swahili name books, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and looking for a way to connect back, you know. Um, hold on, there's a whole truck passing by. It's a whole musical moment happening outside my window right now. Can you hear it? You talk about sound, yeah. <laughs> you talk about sound, you know. <laughs> Brooklyn. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, I appreciate these sounds differently now after quarantine because for so, there was such a silence, like, there was a silence for for months on end. And then that silence was punctuated by sirens like you hear right now and bird songs, but the sounds of the street, you know, ceased to exist for a while there. So I, I have a different kind of appreciation for sound. Yeah, that's actually, that's real. I think that's, um, yeah, no, I think that's one of the things about the pandemic. We moved to a house and so I've sort of experienced some of the same thing. 
and in a sense that like now we have a house and and I could go outside mm-hmm. um, and I and I started like and then I got a puppy and so walking the oh, dog and I started I don't know man my kids be letting the dog like lick their face and like oh oh come on now we don't do I that like, I was like for real I was like you <laughs> fucking with all of my stereotypes right now dude. right we, yeah. we, you got that shit in the butt <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like come on man I was like the puppy just wants to say hi I was like I'm good town <laughs> You can lick my hand. Yeah. But you know, it's funny though, because like also, you know, it's weird because I think um, you know, living in a city and, and it's all kinds of reasons why growing up we didn't have animals and, and they didn't allow animals in certain neighborhoods. But I don't know. I feel like it's something about loving somebody that is not like you, a thing that is not like you. You know, a thing like like you say you love a dog or a cat. I mean, like fundamentally that animal doesn't doesn't motivate you to love them in the way that people do and I, and it's just interesting to see uh, my kids begin to think about their existence in the world in that in that different way and me too you know the, the sort of obligations and how you still do your work with those obligations and that whole idea of time you know it's like i can't do this thing because i don't have enough time and then suddenly you got a puppy and you got to walk the puppy or like people who are muslim and they pray five times a day it's like i don't have enough time and now you you find time to pray five times a day um, and, and also you find value, like the guys in prison who I know who will want, uh, who will want the mark here from praying, mm-hmm. um, because it shows how, how, how faithful they are, how but they, they also still found time to do everything else that they needed to do. And I think in the best of both worlds, what we're trying to do is like, like even finding time to gather these stories is always what will get value five or six or 10 years from now. And a lot of times. The, the thing that I value about the puppy will be like like the moments that we walked early in the morning. And I'll remember those more so, I think, than like the photocopying that I've done. Or like for the for the Freedom Library, for Freedom Reads, you know, I've shipped out 15,000 books myself. Mm. You know, taking the boxes from the storage unit, placed them in my truck, printed out the shipping labels, put them on the boxes, put them in the truck, taking them to the post office, had relationships with the people who work in the post office and mailed them. And and that is that is not the part of the work that anybody will remember or applaud, right? But I know that that's the part of the work that, that I'll remember. So I, I, I think it's just like time, it's just this really interesting thing because it's always asking us, how can we negotiate between what has to be done and what actually matters? That's so interesting is you're taking me back there's two parts of your story that take me back to this time in my life. When I um, was probably about 20, 21, um, I went and spent a year volunteering in Central Africa in Gabon um, as an English teacher. The two parts of your story that, that, that resurfaced at that time so many, many years ago is one, you know, we, we, we established a library. On, there wasn't a library in the school. So we, we did an international book drive and had people send thousands of books. And so I remember those stories. I remember that that picking up the boxes. I remember creating the space. I remember, you know, what it means to, to have that physical feeling of creating a space where books are at the center of it. And I haven't thought about that in a lot of years. So I'm, I'm grateful for this story you're sharing, bringing that back up. But then the other thing that, it, that called to mind um, that time in my life for me is in reading your work, talking about how you took black poets and um, transcribed the poems and made your own um, yeah. book out of it. <laughs> My students used to do yeah. that because we didn't have the textbook. So they, I would write it on the board and they would transcribe it meticulously and create their own books, their own three ring books. It was amazing. Yeah, no, I'd never forget it. It was like one of the one of the early joys of my life. I guess mm-hmm. interestingly, I, I think I did it with um with that anthology that um you know I didn't anthologies are crucially important um. I mean, I got every shit I ain't sleep beside me, and I don't meet Yousef without it. You know, I don't meet Rita Dove without it, because you're talking about having a book that got 30 poets in it, and I can't afford to buy 30 poetry books. And I think I had this one. I had, every, I had the Black Poets, and I had Ethelbert's joint. And I think that's how I met, you know, like like multiple generations of Black poets. And, and I was copying those poems down because I knew that they would disappear. And what's really interesting is that, you know, sometimes the, the editor, they would they would choose different poets. Um, so for a long time, I thought I had, I had met Yousef and, and the Black poets, but that was a generation before, you know, 
um, last poets in that generation, you know, Yusef born in 47, Nikki Giovanni, one of the last poets in that joint. So she born in the thirties, um, it's completely different. And then every shed I ain't sleep, the last poet in every shed I ain't sleep is Elizabeth Alexander and Reuben Jackson, you know, and Reuben is born in like 57. Um, Elizabeth, um, she born in the sixties. And so what's, what's really interesting is how, um, I met these writers through these three anthologies and I got, I got, um, I got, um, the garden thrives, the Clarence major anthology. And, uh, and those that I was buying, you know, I was like, I'm gonna get this anthology. I'm gonna get that anthology because I sort of recognized that for me to actually meet these writers, it, it was going to be in the anthologies. It, it wasn't going to be, um, you know, I wasn't going to have a chance to meet them by, by getting their books. And then I would get people's books once I got the anthology. So yeah, I think, you know, the, that whole idea of a library and the whole idea of building our personal anthologies is, is radically important in a way in which you only know um, when you live in a condition of scarcity. I love the full circleness of it all because then Elizabeth Alexander becomes one of the people who's funding this work with the Million Book Project. Yeah, you know, and I, like I've known, I, I actually right here, a better Black Interior. <laughs> it's um, and all of these, these is from like she gave this to me in two thousand and and six, and this was the book that that she read from. You know, Elizabeth has radically changed the landscape of arts and fundraising and social justice work, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and, and, and I think that, yeah, I've been grateful to, to like have her as a mentor friend for a long time. It's, it's um, you know, it's strange. I, I mean, I've read her book and then I got her second book that wasn't available through interlibrary loan. So like, you know, my relationship with her work in some ways has always been invested with, you know, my relationship with libraries. And that's an, another reason why I, I do fundamentally think it's something about like coming full circle, you know. One of the things I like to, to ask folk about in this in this series is the idea of like artistic ancestors who came before and, and influenced that work. Who do you feel like you're in the cultural lineage of? Yeah, I would say, you know, Lucille Clifton, uh, Etheridge Knight, and then and then and then um writers who we're fortunate to still have with us. I would say um, Sonia Sanchez, you know. Um, and of course, I would say Elizabeth Alexander. I would say like Yousef, Afar Weaver. Um, I think I would say those folks is like sort of my John Edgar Wyman. I would say that those are the folks that, that like, when I sit down and write, that's where I'm thinking about, you know, that's, that's like the pocket of of writers that I want people that I feel like I, you know, I spend a whole lot of time trying to, in some way or another, like be Yusef, you know, and I, and I spent a whole lot of time in some way or another trying to be, be Etheridge and, 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 and honestly trying to care in a way that Lucille Clifton and Sonia Sanchez care about the world. You know, it's like a, a, a unrelenting, relenting, really, you know, kind of like, commitment to to being human you know in that work uh, in the best way and then and then elizabeth she had a poem um about visiting a prison and it was the first person that i have read who wrote about prison who hadn't been locked up hmm. um and it was just radical and then later on i would read like Wendell brooks um, Gwendolyn Brooks and Robert Hayden both got a poem called The Prisoners. I would say Gwendolyn Brooks and Robert Hayden also on that list. Um, Robert Hayden definitely, you know, I realized that um, today I used to ampersand all the time because of Yousef, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think I think that the the water is is deep, you know, of, of like the the black literary tradition, and I and I do deeply think that. Um, the American literary tradition is the Black literary tradition, and and it's um, some other pockets of the American literary tradition that um, that I think deeply influenced me. But but those people made me want to be writers, though, and 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 those are the writers that I met, including like Rita Dove. I would add to that list. Like if you can't be free, um, be a mystery from Canary, or Rita Dove talking about the um, Perihil, the Parsley poem. It's like radically reinventing what I understood that a poem could do. Inazaki Shange, ain't no self-respecting magician gonna turn a black girl white. Like, you know, like, no. who writes like this? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, um, and, 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 you know, I bought these books. I mean, some of them I bought, you know, Hustling Tobacco. 
but a lot of them I bought like working, you know, like pushing a broom. And um and 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 those books, that shit was like it's a lot to spend, you know, twenty dollars on a book when you work for twenty three cents an hour. Listen. And so the, those writers mean a lot to me. And they carried me through days. The 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 um the the sweat equity that came in and buying those books was well rewarded um by the words. But the sweat equity made me you know, it was a commitment to the words mattering before it even came to me. And so that just kind of got paid off um, exponentially, but but only because in some ways, I think because I was in a position where time was so hard that um, it, it, it encouraged a radical belief that language matters. I can hear it in the language that you use when you talk about them. I, I was struck by the way you say, I met Baraka, I met Lucille, I met and all of these who, people who I assume you actually went on to meet in real life, but but it seems like as you're saying the word met, you're talking about in their words first, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, it was interesting too, because like, you know, uh, Elizabeth, you know, we was people from, from the jump. But she was like, you know, my aunt though, you know what I mean? She from my mom's generation, it was like different. You know, I could ask her for advice. But like Lucille Clifton, I mean, I was like, remember weeping when I met her the first time and, and sort of like, I, I asked her like eight questions, you know, I was a 50 poets in a room and it's like, anybody got questions? I got one. It's like, I got another question. Hey, remember that poem <laughs> when you said Lucille is already an African name? Remember that joint, the lost baby poem? Yo, So, you know, Psalms 120, I think it's one. And then she's like, you mean Psalms 127? Brrr. Like, damn, you know that joint by heart? You know, like she was like brilliant. And and um and, and I asked like eight questions, you know, and by the end, and people weren't even tripping, they was really generous. Everybody had questions. And I didn't realize how like I, you know, I have bad habit, man, dominating space. But I was and I just got out of prison too. And uh, but I couldn't I was like, yo, I can't believe I'm in a room with Lucille Clifton. You know, this is like and I even and then I came, I remember coming back. Um, then we left and we'd be coming back for lunch. We was at UNC Greenboro's campus. And I'd like never been on a college campus. And um, John Mario, Marcus Jackson, and Christian Campbell, they were my roommates. And I remember walking wow. back. And um, I don't know, man. I just started weeping. I was in the parking lot. And Wendy Walkers, Wendy Walters um, ran up on me. She's like, you okay? I was like, I got that. I don't know. And it was, it was stunning, man. Because at that, at that Coffee Conum, Rita Dove was there. Mm-hmm. Lucille Clifton was there. Elizabeth Alexander was there. I got a picture with Elizabeth Alexander, Patricia Smith, a bunch of young poets, all circling me as um, Lita Hooper is, is is doing my locks, you know. And Patricia Smith wrote a poem about it. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's just like I think um, I think prison was like a horrible place, but the the gift that it did give me is like. You could, you cannot predict an opportunity for a young black kid to randomly get introduced to this such a rich legacy of writing, and then have Cornelius Edie um, and Toy Derricotte create Cave Conum, and have that same kid, like, 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 you know, get admitted to Cave Conum. I, when I came home, I called CC. I was like, yeah, I'm trying to come to Kaveh Khanum. And he was like, well, we already selected for this year. Uh, you should apply for next year. It's really hard. It might only be four spots. I was like, bet I see you next year. I only need one spot. <laughs> I was like, I, that's what I told us. I only need one. I said, but if you want to give me two, that's cool. But I don't really have any friends as poets. And, and you know, and then, and then actually to get in and, and to go. And, um, you know, it was it was it was like. So I met them in prison. And then when I met them in person, for some of them, it was like just meeting, you know, it's like you, you got to have lesser gods in the earth or the earth doesn't work right. And it was like meeting, mm. meeting gods walking around. And, uh, and, and you know, and it was, you know, I mean, we stayed up to like three o'clock in the morning because Rita Dove is a night owl. So it was me, Dante Michaud, um, a few other folks, you know, just up with Rita Dove talking about sonnets and poetry. And it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? I used to stay up this late in prison and now I'm kicking it with Rita Dove. It's just, um, yeah. So I, so it's both, you know, it's like, it's like I met them in verse. And then when I met them in person, I didn't meet them as my professors. I didn't meet them. And, and as some of them, I was just like, we, we good. You know, like, I don't even, you've given me enough that, that maybe I'm, I'm even like, yeah, I see Yusef, you know, kicking it, dancing, got a drink in his hand, sitting down. And I'm like, 
think this brother earned some privacy. So I'm, I'm, I'm as much as I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to step off, you know? And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's hard, man. It's hard to think that, uh, that the, the deep felt connection I have to, to those writers and their work is a product of prison or at least a product of like the desperation and the pain and everything that went into figuring out how to do time. Because, you know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I wish I could give the relationship that I have with words to, to others. And I, and I don't know if, uh, you know, some days I'd be like, I don't know if it's possible. And maybe, and maybe that's why, you know, I, I feel like freedom reads and when I went to Mellon about the project and when I changed it from the Million Book Project to Freedom Reads, it was it was in some ways me announcing that my life work was going to be um, trying to replicate that experience in the one place that I know it can be replicated and that it can and that it is vitally needed. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can follow us on Instagram at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. Thank you.